Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those, we're going to read two passages of Scripture tonight, one brief and then one is actually quite lengthy. I know that it is, it is not a, a contemporary style in a church to read long passages of Scripture. Instead, we tend to read bullet points and, and then preach. But this is an unusual passage, and it may actually be one with which some in the house are not familiar. So I'm going to read first from 2 Samuel chapter 11, the first five verses, and then uh, we will turn to um, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, if you want to go ahead and get ready there. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and then 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And it came to pass, after the year was ended, at the time when kings go forth to battle, the David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. It means all the Israeli army. It doesn't mean all of Israel. And all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass at eventide that David arose from his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the, da the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman had conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Certainly that passage of Scripture if not the exact passage, the story is not unfamiliar to anyone in the house or any of those that are watching in our extended campus. The story of David and Bathsheba, there are people who have never read the two books of Samuel that know the basic story of the story of David and Bathsheba. However, that is not the only failure of David's life and career. The second is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. I want to read a lengthy passage of scripture. The first major failure, the moral failure of David with regard is regard to a woman. The second one has nothing to do with a woman. His second major sin, and it was the more devastating of the two, the more destructive beyond David's own personal family, the most destructive nationally, had nothing to do with a woman. It was the sin of a census. God had forbidden the people of Israel to take a census because he said, when you number the people and count your army, pride will enter into the, into the leader of Israel, the king, and he'll begin to take possession of that number and it, and it will ruin him with pride. And yet David ordered a census anyway. Now here's the story and it's a complicated passage. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, And Satan stood up against Israel and enticed David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from, Beth from Beersheba, that's way in the south, from Beersheba even unto Dan, way in the north, 
and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. That's the key verse. David wants to relish in the number that I may know it. And Joab answered, the Lord make his people a hundred times more, many more than they are. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Let me, let me give you the revised Rutland version of verse, the end of verse three. Trespassing. When you see a sign on a fence, it says no trespassing. It doesn't just mean sin. It means you, you have no right to go in there. So Joab says, why are you going to lead the whole nation into a place that they have no right to be involved in? Verse four, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, wherefore Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and finally came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David, and all they of Israel were a million, a, th a thousand, a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand, and a hundred thousand men who drew sword, and Judah was four hundred, threescore, and ten thousand men who drew the sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he, that is Joab, counted he not among them, for the Lord's word was abominable to Joab. In other words, Joab obeyed him, but he left out two of the tribes so that he wouldn't have an exact number, hoping in that way to diminish the consequences of the sin. In other words, we'll sin, but only 10 twelfths of the way. Maybe we'll only get 10 twelfths of the punishment. It was hope against hope. Verse 7. And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he smote Israel. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. And the Lord spoke unto God, and, and, and the Lord spoke unto Gad, David's seer, his advisor, spiritual advisor, if you will, saying, go and tell David, saying, thus saith the Lord. I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, choose for thyself, either three years of famine or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while the word of the, uh, while the word, sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all of the borders of Israel. Now, I want you to think about what he's saying. You counted all the people, and you want to take pride in it. I will diminish the number. Or, I'll let your enemies hound you like hound dogs, or you can have three years of famine. So it's a terrible choice. Now, therefore, consider what word I shall bring to him, to God who sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in great strait or distressed. Let me fall now unto the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. 
And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld, and he repented of the evil. Again, it requires a little explanation. Evil doesn't mean sin. It doesn't mean God is sinning and he repents of it. It means the destruction that he has unleashed. When God sees the destruction he's unleashed, repent means to turn in a different direction. So God sees the destruction and he changes the course. It is enough. Stay now thine hand. This is God speaking to the angel. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between earth and the heaven having a sword drawn in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. And then David and the elders of Israel who were clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is who has sinned and done this evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be upon me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should not go, that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spoke in the name of the Lord, and Ornan turned back and saw the angel, and his four sons with him hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat, and as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar in it unto the Lord and thou shalt grant it to me for the full price that the, that this plague may be turned away from the people. And Ornan said unto David, take it to thee and let my Lord the king do that which is good in his sight. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings and the threshing instruments for wood and the wheat for the meal offering. I give it all to you. And David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price, for I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost, meaning without cost to me. This has to be a sacrifice on my part. You can't give me something. So David David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And the Lord answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And the angel commanded, and the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into his sheath. It's a complicated passage, isn't it? Let's put our hands on the word and pray together. Heavenly Father, with our hands upon your word and our hearts and minds as open as we know how to get them. We're asking that you would do all the rest. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to us tonight. Challenge us. Invade us. Kick open every locked door. Enter every hidden darkened chamber. That when we leave here tonight, we will say, surely the Lord hath dealt with us. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. There is a cute little poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I think many people know one part of it, as I did. 
There was a girl with a curl in the middle of her forehead, and when she was good, she was very good, and when she was bad, she was horrid. But I did not know there was another part of the poem. So I want to read you this little, it's just three quatrains. So here it is, a three, a, a brief poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And it is a, a brief poem about crime and punishment at a humorous level. There was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. One day she went upstairs when her parents unaware were occupied in, the, were in the kitchen occupied with meals. And she stood upon her head in her little trundle bed and began hooraying with her heels. Her mother heard the noise and thought it was the boys a playing at combat in the attic. But then she climbed the stair and found Jemima there and took and she took at her and she did spank her most emphatic. If there is anyone in the Bible who fits Longfellow's description of the little girl, it is King David. He was something. He was a genius, a multifaceted genius, a musician, a poet, a politician, a strategist, a warrior, a conqueror, a national leader, a national founder. And when he was good, he was very, very good. And when he was bad, he was horrid. I think that almost, I hazard to say everybody in the room knows the story of David and Bathsheba. It is certainly well known in the world. Even people that don't even know it's in the Bible. There, there are two names that go with David that people know who don't know anything about the Bible. David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. He won one and lost one. In baseball, batting 500 is really, really good. With God, it's not all that good. The story of Bathsheba is the most famous of David's sins, but the most destructive of his sins has nothing to do with lust. It has to do with pride. Now let's look at these two for just a moment. The moment of temptation is in both places clearly stated. In other words, the sin doesn't fall on David. There is a moment where he enters into a realm of temptation. And we see it. We see it happening. He has a moment where he has time to pause, stop, rethink, reconsider, and halt the whole process. But both times, he walks straight in. The first is the sort of a romantic or erotic story of Bathsheba. He goes up on the rooftop at night, and there is... Bathsheba uh, bathing on her roof a, 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 a wee bit lower than the royal palace. And he sees her naked in the moonlight, and he is filled with passion. That's the moment. Now watch what he does next. He calls somebody and says, who is that woman? Now just listen. The first question is the deadly one. We have every one of us. There's no use to sit there looking religious. <laughs> Every single one of us has come to some moment of desperate temptation. 
And there is a moment in there where we can freeze time. There is a moment in there where we can stop, where we can pause, where we can put the brakes on and hold it. David, the fact that David is tempted by the side of Bathsheba, there's no sin in that. There is no sin at that point. When he steps over the line and says, who is she? At that point, he's beginning to open himself up to the sin. In fact, it's almost inexorable. From the moment of then, all David had to do, look, was just call somebody. He's alone on the rooftop in the dark. There's a beautiful naked woman. All he had to do was close the door, call somebody. Hey, hey, get the guards in here. Let's shoot some pool, something, you know. <laughs> Turn on ESP and quick and make it loud. So, so that, so that it is some sense in which he, he takes an action to deal with it, to hold it at bay. Instead, he takes another step in. It seems innocent. What's her name? I don't know. I'm just wondering, you know. I don't have any, I don't have an agenda here or anything. I'm just wondering what her name was. You know, she's one of my subjects. I feel like I want to know everybody. That's the moment you see where he has stepped over the line. That one question. That's what I'm trying to say. At the point of temptation, at the point of temptation, there is a window. It may feel like it's just, but the fact of the matter is there's a window. And if we can just put the brakes on in that moment, close the door, draw the drapes, step away, it's the next step that seals our fate. The sight of the temptation, the thought of the temptation, that's, that is not a sin. Satan is such a liar. He lies to us on both ends of sin. When he tempts us, the moment we are tempted, he tells us we are in sin, which we are not. And when we have sinned, he tells us it's not a sin, which it is. Because he is the master deceiver. He wants you. He is the one who tempts you. But he wants you to feel guilty and condemned because he is tempting you. But when you yield, he wants you to feel relieved and that there's no problem because he doesn't want you to come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, the same thing holds true then. See, the, the problem when you talk about temptation and sin, it's always a problem is because I don't know if it's our culture or what, but instantly we think of sexual sin. It's sin. I'm not, I'm not diminishing that. The sin of the flesh is sin. It's sin. But it is by no means like the big red one. It is by no means the worst imaginable sin. Sin is sin. Sin is sin. But the more destructive sin is the second sin of David. And yet again, God gives him that window. Somehow, the thought enters into his mind to take a census. I want this census. I want to know how I've been winning all these battles. I've been winning all these wars. Our borders have expanded. We have a great army. I, I want to know what the numbers are. So I feel proud of myself. All right. There's nothing wrong with statistics. I'm not saying that it is that God had forbidden a census for Israel. So there's nothing wrong with the census. I'm just saying, but God had forbidden it for Israel because of this, the sin of pride. So David says, let's have a census. And Joab says, please don't do this. Please don't do this. So here's what I'm saying to, to us, you, me, all of us. We need to hear this. 
There is this moment in temptation where there is a, a window, a pause. It may seem like it races past you like the Tokyo bullet train, but actually it is, it is a freeze frame moment when you can get out of it. But if you step through that, you may very well have gone too far. With Bathsheba, the check was the Holy Spirit. Don't go there. Don't do that. With the issue of the census, the check was a human voice. Don't go there. I, I wish that I could speak to every young person in the world. There's, when there comes that voice, that, that human voice, that parent, that friend, I don't think we ought to go there. Let's don't get in that place. I feel uncomfortable. Let's leave. Are you, your, your mother? I, see, on Wednesday night, I have a, all the moms and dads in here who are saying to themselves, I wish he was saying this to Bob. So I, I, but I wish I could say to all the kids, when you hear that human voice, don't go there. Don't step there. Don't go with that person. Don't be there. It's that, that voice is that, is that moment. That's that freeze frame moment. If you can hear that human voice as if it is the voice of God and step back, the destructiveness of what happens next will never be unleashed. Now, the second thing is this. When, when David refuses to listen, the pain of the consequence of his sin is unleashed. In his life, this is, this is what's hard. In his life and in the lives of many others. So this is, this is the hardest thing to teach, the hardest thing to preach. You ever hear people say this? They say, just leave me alone. I'm just doing my own thing. I'm not hurt. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm doing my own thing. This, what do you care? What I put in my body? What do you care? where I go or with whom I sleep or what I drink or whatever. What do you care? This is me. This is my own body. But the problem is every, nobody sins in a vacuum. Our sins touch others. This is, this is why, and of course this is... Now... Uh, Talking about abortion to Christians is, is, a little, is preaching to the choir, and I don't want to do that. We're, we're in agreement on this, but I'm trying to explain to you about the consequence of sin. The sin of abortion is based on, the rationale for the sin of abortion is based on the reality, this is, this is my body. I can do, this is my body. The government doesn't have any right to get involved in my body. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do with my body. The only problem with that line of reasoning is that it's not just your body. As you, you, the sin of abortion has a consequence. There's pain. There's difficulty. There's loneliness. There's guilt. There's remorse. That's all for the mother. But there's death for the baby. That sin is not in a vacuum. There's another life involved. Do you, do you see what I'm trying to say? So the, the guy who won't pay his child support 
He says, this is, this is my life. I'm living my own life. I get to do what I want. What about me? What do I get to do? Yeah, but you understand you've got a wife and kids that can't pay their school bills. Nobody sins in a vacuum. You, you get, go to a bar and get drunk and you say, this, this is my life. I don't, nobody tells me. Yes, that's fine. But then you're so drunk. You don't have any judgment. You get behind the wheel of a car. You veer across the yellow line and head on into some family and wipe them out. It's not just your life. It's not just your body. Sin hurts people. Sin hurts people. It hurts people around us. Look at what David did. Look at the, the pain that he unleashed. This, uh, this baby that uh, he conceives, that, that is conceived that night in his adultery with Bathsheba. Now, what do we do? See, he says, what am I going to do? I've got to cover this up. So he actually decides to palm the baby off on her husband. It's a, it's a, it's a desperate lie to cover a sin. It's, it's always the cover up. So he's going to palm the baby off on Uriah, who's a better man than David is. So he calls Uriah home from the battlefield on some bogus mission. And he says, go home to your house and spend the night with your wife. So the proximity of chronology, he'll be able to tell Uriah that the baby's his, but she's already pregnant. And listen to what Uriah says. He says, your majesty, my men are sleeping in foxholes. My men are lonely and cold out in the battlefield. My men are in the rain. I, I'm not going home and getting a bed with my wife. I, I'm, I'm loyal to my men. He says, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll lie down right here by your door and I'll guard your door tonight. And David writes a note. And hands it to Uriah. And he says, when you get back to the battlefield, give this to Joab. In the morning, attack the city. And tell Uriah the Hittite to lead the battle. And as soon as you get close to the wall, withdraw. And leave Uriah exposed. And then write to me that the deed is done. So he's, he's not just impregnated this woman. Now he's entering into a high-level governmental conspiracy to hide the fact and commit murder. So Uriah is killed. He marries Bathsheba. You all know the story. And then the prophet comes and denounces his sin and it's made public. But not only that, the prophet says the baby will die. The baby is going to die. This, I think this story is probably the hardest thing to teach in the whole life of David. Because we are so, we are so saturated in the, in the great New Testament truth of grace, which I believe in. But I do want to say to you, there are consequences to sin. There are consequences. People get hurt. People get killed. People get wounded. Families get broken up. There are consequences to it. And God says the baby's going to die. And the baby dies. Now, Uriah has been murdered. David's name has been bes besmirched. His government has been tarnished. He marries 
this woman whom he impregnated and murdered her husband, that baby dies. There are consequences. Now we have this sin of the census. And, and, and God says to David, I'll let your enemies chase you. I will send three years of famine or I'll, I'll send a plague for three days. And David, it's the, it's the turning point in David's in the moment. David says, you're a God of mercy. My enemies have no mercy. I leave it up to you. And this plague hits. Now, see, that is so hard for us. As New Testament Christians, it's hard for us to, to see the, the unleashing of this. But it, but it can happen. It can, it, this is what, this is what we're not facing about this entire country. Is that they're, they're, it is within the right of God to punish the United States if he so chooses. It is within his rights. God, God knows I pray that he won't. God knows I pray he won't. But I also know we've given him cause if he should choose to. I do know that. And we, we, we hang in that terrible balance. We, we're there. On the one hand, the Bible says God is as terrible in battle as an army with its banners unfurled. A fire goes before him and burns up all his enemies. I don't want to read that verse. But he is also full of grace and his mercies are new every morning. He treats us as a, a tender shepherd with a, a little lamb with a broken leg. I like that. But we see the tension, the balance of the sin and the devastation and the hurt and the woundedness that we unleash. Yes, God forgives us. But the damage is not always immediately undone. This is, this, this is the hardest message in the whole series I'm doing on David. Look, here's a guy who sins against his family, leaves his wife, gets remarried, leaves her, gets married, leaves her. The fourth wife, he and that wife find the Lord and they get saved. Are they saved? No, this is not a trick question. Are they saved? They're saved. They, they come to free chapel some night, maybe. And there they are. He's got, he's got four marriages and she's got three. He's got kids scattered from Dan to Beersheba. She's got some ex-husbands, all this woundedness. And they come here and come to the altar and get saved. Praise God, right? Praise God. We pray with them. We receive them. We welcome them. The blood of Jesus cleanses them from all sin. There's, there is therefore now no condemnation to them. Yes? Yes? Yes. But the problem is he's got three wives who hate him. He's got wounded children in the back. He's done all this damage. Yes, you're saved, but the damage doesn't immediately get undone. That's, that's the hardest thing to say to people. Now, what I know is God can bring redemption and healing and grace and all the rest, but, but you don't get to choose the pace for the race. All you do is find God's forgiveness for you. 
But then there's all these wounded, damaged people behind you. And you've got to be able to say, oh, God, look at what I've done. And that's what David does. He says, God, these people, this nation, this nation, they haven't done anything. This is on me. Let the angel with the sword, let him stab me. And you begin to see the other David. You begin to see this broken David. You begin to see this humble David. Now you begin to see this confession of David. It's the same David that showed up following Bathsheba. Following his denunciation, the death of the baby, the murder of Uriah the Hittite. Public confrontation. Public confrontation. And at the end of it, David writes Psalm 51 and says, I want it sung in the temple. And the song leader, song leader says, you know, your majesty, hey, look, I just, I'm just a song leader. But I'm telling you, when, when we sing this, people are going to think about Bathsheba. He said, yes. He said, yes, I want it sung as long as there is an Israel. I want it remembered that I sinned against God. But I want it remembered that I repented. So sing the song. That's this other David. That's this other David. Who says, yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've damaged all these people. I unleashed all this destruction. But I repent. Purge me with hyssop, O Lord. Cleanse me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. So this is, this is the kind of hard part. Now comes the good part. Now I want you to look at this. When that baby dies that is conceived in adultery, when that baby dies, then the next verse says, and David comforted Bathsheba. Well, we don't, we don't know what that was like. It's a fascinating verse, isn't it? That David takes his wife in his arms and says, yes, we've sinned. I'm sorry about what happened to your husband. I did that. That's on me. The baby is dead. Look at the embarrassment, the scandal. Look at this. But with what words does he comfort her? Maybe he says, I know God and God is still with us. Somehow or another, I know God is with us. And then she gets pregnant again. And that baby, they name in Hebrew Shlomo. We say it in English, Solomon. But the name in Hebrew is Shlomo. It comes from the word Shalom. So they say this, this baby is peace. We found peace after all the sin and the destruction and the embarrassment and the scandal. This baby is peace. But then the prophet comes and says, it's fine that you've named the baby Shlomo, that you've named the baby Solomon. But God calls the baby Jedidiah. God calls the baby Jedidiah. Jedidiah in Hebrew means Jehovah loves him. Jehovah loves him. 
What a mighty God we serve. It's as if God says, okay, look, that was horrible. I, I hate that sin, the destruction, the death, all that you've caused. But I'm, I, I don't know holding a grudge against you. This is a new chapter. This is a new place. And that baby is gone. But I love this baby. And I have a plan for this child. I care about this baby. Now, jump forward and watch this. Now, David falls into this second sin, which is, he learned his lesson on that. It's not this sin. It's a different sin. See, Satan says, okay, I couldn't get him with that. Let's try this. If you think he's given up on you, you're wrong. So, David falls into this sin with this census. And there's all this devastation. All these people die. And then he sees the angel of the Lord with his sword stretched out. He's about to hit Jerusalem, the city that God loves. And he sees the angel with his sword drawn about him. God says to the angel, stop, hold. And David says, look, if he's going to hit anybody, let him hit me. These sheep haven't done anything. And God says, here's what I want you to do. He says, buy this. It's a massive stone, huge stone that is owned by a Jebusite. He's not an Israeli. He's not a Jew. He's owned by this Jebusite, a big, huge stone. And he says, I want you to buy this. On top of it, he's built a platform on top of this big rock so they can thresh wheat. He says, buy it. And it's not going to be a threshing floor anymore. It's going to be an altar. I want you to build an altar. I want you to offer sacrifice here. And David goes to Ornan, who owns it, this Jebusite, and he says, I need this. God wants to make it an altar. And the man says, your majesty, take it. Take the oxen. Take everything. It's all. Listen to what David says. No, he says, I will not offer God a sacrifice that didn't cost me anything. Not only that, but not once, but twice, he says, I want to pay full price. Don't even cut me a deal. He says, I want to pay full price for this. And he pays full price and builds the altar there. And the plague is averted. But that is not the end of that story. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, that baby, Shlomo, Solomon, Jedediah, now is going to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. And where does he build it? 2 Chronicles chapter 3, he builds it on the threshing floor of Ornan. Do you understand the place of your darkest aberration, which can become the place of your most profound conviction and repentance, becomes the place of worship and restoration. All of us, for all of us, our darkest moments are because of our sins. I know less than you. Our most humbling and even humiliating moments are in those seasons of conviction where the Holy Spirit 
or a human voice prods us and says, you're wrong and you know you're wrong. This is sin. Our most painful moments are to see the suffering that we unleash in the lives of others because of our own selfishness. And our most splendid and wonderful moments are when, despite all of that, we find his grace and experience the temple of his presence at the moment of our darkest, at the place of our darkest sin and our sweetest surrender. There once was a girl with a curl in the middle of her forehead. And when she was good, she was very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. And she went upstairs and stood on her head in her bed and kicked her feet against the wall until her mother was ready to blame the boys for making noise. But when their mother got up there, she spanked her. And you've never had a spanking from God. I envy you. God can whoop you. No, I mean, not spank. God can whoop you. You haven't been whooped till you've been whooped by God. But at the end of it, at the end of it, he says, now, come into my arms and let's build the place of sweet surrender right here, right here. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.